Let's pray before we open God's word this morning, Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray, even as we just sung, sung in prayer, that you would speak to us by your word this morning. That it would not be the words of men that we hear, but it would be the words of you, our God who sits enthroned above. For that to be the case, your spirit must attend to this word or it will fall on deaf ears and frozen hearts. So we pray that you would work in our midst. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37, this is the holy and errant word of God. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Remember last week as we looked at the issue of spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare is one of those things that is hard to see because it's happening in the spiritual realm. There are other things that are clearly seen and we can make a a very clear judgment upon them as Jesus is pointing out here in the text. I was telling the kids during VBS this summer, I was telling them that I have a reoccurring, I had as a child a reoccurring dream. Uh, It was a dream that I probably had two dozen times or more as a child. And the dream was this, as I was in a swimming pool and I was swimming along in the swimming pool, just enjoying a nice sunny day, swimming back and forth, swimming back and forth, and all of a sudden there was a shark in the swimming pool. And so I would swim that way, and the shark would swim that way, and I would swim that way, and the shark would follow me and swim that way. And so I did what any logical person would do. I would jump out of the pool. But the shark jumped out of the pool. And I had this dream over and over. And so, because the shark jumped out of the pool, I began to run. Well, the shark flipped up on its tail, and it would just run after me. And my dream was me running through city streets with a shark chasing after me. My greatest fear in life is sharks. I hate sharks. People say, well, sharks don't eat people. Listen, you don't have teeth like that and not have a purpose behind them. Sharks eat people. It's clearly evident. That's what they do. I don't go in water unless I can see the bottom. And even then, even in a swimming pool, I'm looking for sharks. It's clearly evident. Jesus is pointing out that there are things that are clearly evident that you can see very clearly. 
He makes the point via illustration in this passage, the Pharisees have just accused Christ, who remember of being in league with Satan, and Christ says to them, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And they had accused him of being in league with Satan, and now he, he turns upon them, and he proclaims that what a person does is what a person is. We live as we believe. We speak as we are. And so three points this morning from this text. First, clear theology is always needed. Clear theology is always needed. Second, hard words are sometimes required. And third, our words are always evidential. So first, clear theology is always needed. It has often been said, everyone is a theologian. R.C. Sproul was famous for hitting upon this over and over as he spoke to people. People would say, well, doctrine divides. Theology makes for a dead orthodoxy. And Sproul would push back upon that when he was alive, and he would ask people, who is Jesus? And as soon as they began to say who Jesus was, he would say, you're theologizing. What you're saying about Jesus is theology. You're articulating theology. It's unavoidable. Jesus died is history. Jesus died for me is theology. And we all are theologians. We are to have a, a childlike faith. There's no doubt about that. That is, we are to have a trusting kind of faith. But that doesn't mean that our faith is to remain immature. No, Paul says... We are to grow up to maturity. We are to eat more solid food and not just remain upon the milk that we first learn upon coming to saving faith. Theology matters. And in this passage, Jesus launches, launches into a theological discourse. It's needed. It's required. And he does so by using an illustration to drive home his theological point. The illustration is of a tree and its fruit. If a tree has rotten fruit, it's a bad tree. You know that. If a tree has good fruit, then you know that it's a good tree. The fruit testifies of the root. If the fruit is good and healthy, it testifies that the root is healthy. If the fruit is bad, it testifies that the root is bad. The Pharisees have accused Jesus of being in league with Satan. He says, look at the fruit. And then he turns the tables, and he says, look at your fruit. In essence, he's saying their root is bad. He's pointing out that these accusers, as he says, can only do evil. Why? Because the root is bad. They cannot, and they will not do good. No unregenerate person can do good. And our theology needs to be clear on this. Theologians since Augustine uh, have defined it this way. Thomas Boston, the old Puritan, uh, is maybe most famous for it. It's what has been called the fourfold estate of man or the, the fourfold state of mankind. That is that there are four possible states for man to be in. There is the first state, which is Adam and Eve in the garden. This is pre-fall. In the garden, Adam and Eve, in that state that they were in, they were able 
to sin. That was a possibility. They were able to sin. But it was also true that in the garden they were able not to sin. They were able not to sin and they were able to sin. Well, of course, you know in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve, as they were tempted, they chose to sin. And because of that, mankind entered into that, that second category, that second state of mankind. Where now man is able to sin. Every single man, woman, and child born into this world is able to sin. But is not able not to sin. It's not a possibility. This has been closed, this option. We're born into this world as sinners, only able to sin. That's what we do. Paul in Romans 5 will say that we are slaves to sin. It is, as he will also say in Ephesians 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. A bad tree bears bad fruit. Why? Because the root is bad. We can no longer not sin. We will always choose evil. Always. We're dead. We're slaves of sin. You say, but I know some very good non-Christians. I know some very good non-Christians that, that do good things. Well, true in one sense, it's true. But in another sense, it's not true at all. As Paul will say in Romans 3, there is none who does good. No, not even one. They do good in one sense. It's what I would call a civic good. They, they do good for the people around them, but it is not an ultimate good. It's not a good that is aimed at the glory of God. For something to be ultimately good, to be truly good, it has to be aimed at the glory of God. Before I came to Saving Faith, uh, when I was in junior high and high school, um, before that, I was a Boy Scout. Uh, I loved the law. I would hold up my three fingers and say, Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. And I sought to live like that. I was a member of the National Honor Society, vice president of it. I wanted to uphold honor and our school. I volunteered to raise money for the homeless with crop walks every year. And I would seek to raise money for people struggling with diabetes doing a bike-a-thon every year. I used to raise money for this women's battered shelter each year. And I would go over there because men couldn't do it. But I could as a junior high kid or a senior high kid. They would allow me to go to this hidden house and help clean the outside of this women's battered shelter. It's all good in one sense, but not in another. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. There was nothing ultimately good in me. And the motivation, it may be for worldly recognition, it may be to free one's own conscience, it may be to earn favor with God, 
The Pharisees had such a mindset. They were aimed at reforming society, but God's glory was not in their view or in their plan, and neither was it in mine. Now listen, I would much rather live next door to a Boy Scout than a terrorist. But in the grand scheme of things, the Boy Scout helping the old lady across the street no more justifies him than the terrorist blowing up buildings justifies him. It's not ultimately good. I thought subconsciously that I could maybe do enough to validate my existence, but it was not lasting good. It was not ultimate good. So how can one do good? How can you do it? Well, you can't will it. You can't force it. You can't conjure it up. Jesus is pointing that out here in this passage, that there is only one way to change the character of our actions, and that is by the character of our hearts changing. And that's the third state of man, regenerate man. Regenerate man is able not to sin. And regenerate man is able to sin. He's able not to sin and can choose to do good. He is able to sin and choose evil. It's when the grace of God falls upon an individual and that heart of stone is turned to a heart of flesh and He writes His law upon our hearts and gives us a new life. Now in Christ, I can once again choose to do good. I can aim things at His glory, be motivated by praise for Him and love for Him. As God's Spirit dwells within me with a new heart and we are called to a new obedience and such a life with a good root will produce good fruit, Jesus is saying. The fourth state, of course, is what we all long for. And on that day that we are not able to sin, this option is closed. That we're able not to sin forever. It's the only option. I'm no longer in this world and no longer battling indwelling sin and no longer battling this adversary and no longer battling my flesh when I'm fully set free, just able not to sin for all of eternity. Clear theology is always needed. Jesus is correcting the error of these Pharisees by bringing theology to bear. Don't, don't they know that apart from Him, they can do absolutely nothing? They claim they are doing good, and Jesus points out that they can't do anything but evil. Why? Because they are bad trees. And they are bad trees because they have bad roots. And they have bad roots because they have planted themselves in this world and not in Christ. No one will ever do any good apart from being united to Christ. You can't. And so our second point. Hard words are sometimes needed. Jesus says some very hard words to the Pharisees here that have 
wrongly accused him. He calls them, in verse 34, he calls them, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He speaks absolutely severely to them. And this is a little odd, just after the passage we looked at two weeks ago, where Isaiah is pointing out that he is the one who will not crush the bruised reed, and he will not extinguish the smoldering flame. That is, that he's a gentle Savior. And yet, here, he has harsh, strong words for these Pharisees. He's, in essence, turning their accusation against against him upon them. He's saying, you are in league with Satan. He's recalling Genesis 3 and saying, look, you are a viper, just like that serpent was tempting Eve. He's looking forward to Revelation 12, where Satan is called that ancient serpent. You're in league with him, Jesus is saying. He wants them to be awakened to their darkness. Why? Because we must know our poverty before we can enjoy His riches. And so He calls wolves, wolves. He calls snakes, snakes. He's tender with His sheep, but He's harsh with wolves. You don't coddle wolves. You kick them. Notice, your theology has to be clear to do so. Hard words are sometimes needed. He uses them, so should we, but theology must be clear. And that leads to the second reason, maybe even the most important reason of why he does this, is that they are falsely teaching others. He's warning the crowds that are around, that are watching these Pharisees in their lives, and Jesus is making it clear so that these people know that these Pharisees are just playing the part. They're just whitewashed tombs. And he doesn't want them to be led astray by these Pharisees. He's saying, be careful who you model your life after. Be careful who you follow and always listen to their words. tell uh, younger men that I disciple, I will tell them, have three mentors and have three models, but they got to be different. You have three mentors, you find three older men, they're not going to come to you, so you go find them. Three older men that you approach and say, would you just be my mentor? When I have questions, when I have things that I need to wrestle through, can I just come to you and ask a question? They've got to be living. But you have three models. We're not living. Three models from church history that you look at and you say they lived life well. They finished the race. Those are your models. The people that you model your life on. Because you can see the fruit over the course of their lives. What they did and what they said an entire life to examine. It was this week, uh, a pastor I knew, he was formerly a pastor, I often sat with him at a meeting we would go to each year. And he committed suicide this week. And uh, a number of years ago, he was caught in pretty gross sexual sin. And he was just arraigned on charges 
about a month ago on things involving children, and it was also handling women that work the streets. Went from preaching the gospel to that. And I was grieving over uh, his loss of life this week and was talking to another friend that knew him. That friend made this comment as we were talking. He said, you know, I never had a conversation with him where he wasn't complaining or upset or railing against somebody or something. I look back and I think, yeah, I don't think I've ever, I ever had a conversation with him either where he wasn't doing that. And maybe we missed our opportunity to speak a hard word to him. Hard words are sometimes needed. Niceness is not always rightness. So Jesus speaks hard words to these Pharisees. You notice, though, that when Jesus speaks hard words, or when Paul in his letters speaks hard words, or when James in his epistles speaks hard words, it's with the aim to affect hard hearts. The hard words were never spoken out of pleasure. They were never spoken out of gain for themselves, nor in order to get a little satisfaction from shocking or scaring someone. No, hard words were spoken with an aim at the glory of God for the good of the gospel. Make sure your heart is pure before you speak hard words to someone else. Third, this leads us to our third point. Our words are always evidential of the state of our hearts. The words of these Pharisees have betrayed them. You see, all words are heart words. When Jesus speaks of the heart here, he's referring to the center of our physical, emotional, intellectual lives. He's speaking of the seat of our affections and our wills and our thinking. And Jesus is asserting that what we speak, we speak according to our character, according to who we are. When something quickly comes out of our mouths in a moment of fear or Anger, we will say, well, that wasn't me. Or we may ask ourselves, I wonder where that came from. It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes. It was me. And it came from where it always was. It came from within. And it's a bad word, an evil word. We want to dismiss it with, ah, it was just, Tired, it was just the stress of the moment. It didn't rise from me. No, it did. It didn't arise out of nothing. It wasn't implanted by someone or something outside of us. It was not circumstances that forced it. It was there all along, and from there it came. As has been said, the tongue is an index of the heart. and What is there will come out. Think of it like a, being in a swimming pool. You take one of those rubber balls in a swimming pool. You used to love to do this as a kid. You take a big rubber ball and you push that rubber ball down underneath the water and you try and hold it down. You set your mind upon holding it down and you use your energy to hold it down. And, but eventually it's going to pop up. Eventually it reaches the surface. 
And so it is with the things in our hearts. What is there we can push down, we can even hold down, but eventually it, it pops up. What fills our hearts is what fills our mouths. The tongue is but the bucket drawing from the well of our hearts and thoughts that reside there. So Jesus says, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. That is, what we value the most is what comes out. Our innermost storehouse is our heart. We hide in our heart what we value, and from there the tongue draws it forth. What do you value? You can hear it in what you talk about and what you say. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. If I stood up here this morning and I had a water bottle and, and I squeezed that water bottle, what would you expect to come out? Expect water to come out. If there was Kool-Aid in that bottle and I squeezed it, what would you expect to come out? Kool-Aid. If it was the nectar of heaven in that water bottle, Diet Coke, and I squeezed it, what would you expect to come out? Diet Coke. It's the overflow of what's there that comes out. There's no keeping it in. Show me a man who has control of his tongue. And you've shown me a wise man. Show me a woman who is kind and loving in her speech. You've shown a woman that has a kind and loving heart. On the other hand, a woman with a tongue that's engaged in gossip, though no matter how much she special pleads that she's just concerned about this person or just wants others to be praying or just wants to be able to process it with someone. Her mouth is filled with gossip. It is a heart that is filled with pride and arrogance and a critical spirit. A mouth filled with curse words, but shows anger and profaneness in the soul. Harsh words flowing in our speech, bitterness and wrath in our spirits. Insensitive and consistently offensive words, selfishness and self-centeredness and a lack of love at our root. Judgmental in our conversations, coveting and jealousy have a home in us. What controls our hearts moves our tongue. Our words are always evidential. This helps explain the strange words in verse 37 where Jesus says, By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And just before that, there in verse 36, he tells us, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That's an absolutely scary prospect. A man coming up to me over ten years ago and Saying, Pastor, this verse scares me more than any other verse in the Bible. Jesus here is making an argument, as he often does, from the lesser to the greater. We will give an account, he says, for every careless word, that is, every idle word, every word we just say off the cuff, every word that just kind of slips out or comes out, the things that we think are insignificant, he says, is evidence of what is in our heart. 
And he's saying if that is true of just these these small words, just these off-the-cuff words, just these words that we count as insignificant, then how much more so the words that we contemplate and we think and then we give great speeches with. We will be justified, Jesus says, by our words. We're condemned by our words. They stand forever as evidence for us or against us. I've heard people say over the years, and rightfully so, they've said, be careful what you put on Facebook or what you put on Twitter or what you put on Instagram because it's out there forever. We've seen this lately with different politicians and different celebrities that things are brought up from 10 years ago and 15 years ago. You can delete the post. You can delete the account, but it's still out there somewhere. That's what people will say, don't put it out there, but we have more reason than that. It's remembered forever by God. That is why we are to be slow to speak and quick to listen. It's been pointed out in human history. This is why we have two ears and one tongue. Slow to speak. And Jesus says we're justified or condemned by those words. Now, how can that be? But we've made it very clear that you and I are unable to do any good. We're unable not to sin in that second state of man. We, we sin. We're inclined to it. We do it. We gravitate towards it. We, we can't help it. It's an impossibility for us not to sin in our fallen state, in that unregenerate state. So how is it that a man can be justified by his words then? Well, Jesus is making the point that it is evidence of what is true of our root. It's the fruit that evidences the root. As we've said, no man is able to do good except the one that's regenerated in Christ, one who has received his grace, and as the heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh, and his words... His law is written upon our heart, then our words begin to change. And it evidences. It evidences a changed heart wrought by divine, sovereign love from heaven. It evidences it. This is how you make sense of some of the things in the Psalms. For instance, when David in Psalm 18.20 makes an appeal to God based on his righteousness, he'll say, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. And yet in other places, David is very clear that he knew that he was a sinner and that he had to confess his sins and that he needed forget for forgiveness. It's the same argument that James is making in, in his letter when he says, faith apart from works is dead. David knows his need for forgiveness, but he confesses that God has treated him according to his righteousness. That is, he knows the evidence of righteousness in his life is evidence of God counting him righteous. A true faith will be truly evident. A good tree will bear good fruit. The person who acts righteously, who speaks righteously, is the person who is counted righteous, though they are not justified by those righteous deeds evidence. 
A person who acts wickedly or speaks evil evidences that they are evil. Our words are always evidential of the state of our soul. A few applications in closing. First, examine your life and examine your tongue to see what is in your heart. Listen to your words. What naturally arises? We're often blind and we're often dumb to our own sins and we're often blind and we're often dumb to our own state. Your words are, are a heart monitor. You know, we'll go in and we'll get an EKG or EEG or whatever those things are and it will tell us the state of our heart. Your mouth tells you the state of your heart. So you listen to it as the doctor would listen to one of those fangled things. Am I regenerate? If I see the contrary in my life and words, then there's only one solution. You have to run to Christ. You have to cry out for His grace. It's the only way. If I am regenerate, do I see the evidence that I should see? Good works and good words should overflow from our hearts. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said it like this. He said, when it comes to faith, what a living, creative, active, powerful thing it is. It cannot do other than good at all times. It never waits to ask whether there is some good work to do. Rather, before the question is raised, it has done the deed and it keeps on doing it. A man not active in this way is a man without faith. That is, it's the overflow. It's the overflow of a changed heart. That you want to do good. And if we don't see evidence, then there is no life. I also think we have to be careful here because the Christian will not see perfection. We are still in the third state. We are still in this world. We're still battling sin. We're still... In this flesh, we still have an adversary and we are still able to sin. But we know and we're guaranteed that God will forgive us in Christ because Christ made an atonement for that sin. And so there will be a day that we're perfected and we no longer will be able to sin. So though we know we will be held accountable for every word that we have uttered, we also know that every single one of those words that was uttered According to evil, it's covered over by his blood. And we are forgiven. But in light of that, second, dear Christian, be careful what you fill your mind and what you fill your heart with. Because we're still in that third state. We still have to battle sin. We still have to try not to sin. So be careful what you fill your mind and your heart with because what you fill your mind and your heart with, that's what you will meditate upon. That's what you'll think upon. That's what you'll desire. We often ask the question, is it allowable for me to do this or to do that? And it's the wrong question. The question for the Christian is, is it profitable for me to do this or to do that? Is it profitable 
Does it help me, as Paul commands in Philippians 4, to think upon these things, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, these are the things we are to think upon. From this will flow the words of your mouth and the actions of your life. Garbage in, garbage out. When garbage is coming out, you know there's garbage within. Often, especially before I preach, I cry with that psalmist when he says there in Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Tied together, what I meditate upon and what I say. Finally, remember what your tongue is for. Remember the power it has. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. He goes on to say in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Use your mouth to build one another up. It has the power to give life, and it has the power to take life. Too often our tongues are wielded to tear others down. Whereas Paul says, only use them, only use them for what is good for building up. So you use your, your tongue to encourage others. You notice how often Paul does this in his letters. You use your tongue to bless others. You use your tongue to pray for others. You use your tongue to teach others. Let it be seasoned with salt. All because ultimately your tongue was given to express your love for God and your love for others. That's why you have a tongue. A tongue is the greatest instrument in the world. It serves as the trumpet of our hearts. It blares forth our praise, our thanksgiving, and our love to God, and our thanksgiving and our love to one another. That's why you have it. I remember saying a, a curse word when I was in high school before an adult. And an adult said to me, Jason, do you kiss your mom with that mouth? I think a good question for a Christian would be, do you give praise to God with that mouth? That mouth that you just slandered with? That mouth that you just gossiped with? That mouth that you just expressed hatred with? Is that the same mouth that you give praise to God with? More than anything, we, we want to control our tongues. We want them to be filled with the praise of God and thanksgiving to God and building one another up because we want to give glory to our God. It's with these tongues. It's this tongue, this resurrected tongue, 
that you will sing to his praise for all of eternity. It's with this resurrected tongue that you will say to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's with this tongue. So I want to prepare it for glory. And I want to give him all the praise that I can in this life with this instrument that he's given to me to do so with. May it flow from the heart, heart that's been wrought by his grace, because it can't flow any other way. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not leave us in a state of sin, but that you have made a way for us in your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that we can have new hearts, new lives. From that can flow new words of praise, new fruit gives glory and honor to you, and that builds one another up. Help us to be heart-purified people by your grace and by your kindness, who live lives that are full of overflowing hearts that bring forth goodness in our words and goodness in our actions. Help us to keep a close watch on our tongues we might build one another up and give you glory as we were created to do and redeemed to do. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.